Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me now to Luke's Gospel this evening. Luke chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 21 through 38 this evening. 21 through 38. Last year, we looked at Mary's song, the Magnificat, and we also looked at the song of the angels, the Gloria, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And last week, last Lord's Day, we looked at Zechariah's great song of praise, the Benedictus, and as he anticipates his son, John the Baptist, becoming his forerunner, or becoming the forerunner, rather, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry. And so tonight we've come to the final of the four songs of the Incarnation. These four songs that really punctuate Luke's gospel. Almost like a a trumpet fanfare announcing the royal arrival of a king of kings, God incarnate. Tonight we look at that fourth song in Luke, the song of Simeon. uh, The Nunc Dimittis, as it's often known from the Latin. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart. Letting your servant be dismissed in peace. So let's look now to God's word. We'll read it and then we'll pray as we study his word together. Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 22. This is God's holy word. Take heed how you hear it. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Would you pray with me, friends? Oh God, the Lord Jesus is a light for revelation to the nations, to the Gentiles, and he is a glory for your people Israel. 
Grant, O God, that his light may shine into all our hearts and that we may know you and come to you. And like Simeon, may we find the great satisfaction of our lives in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us insight and illumination into your word tonight, O Holy Spirit. Amen. Godly saints in the quote-unquote final quarter of life are some of the most absolutely encouraging things to me. Uh, It's one of those counterintuitive things, as so many godly saints are in that last quarter of life, that final quarter of life, and from an earthly perspective, they're miserable, and their bodies are constant sources of discomfort and pain and misery to them, and yet even in those weeks and months and years of misery and discomfort and general unpleasantness that can so often be experienced in this life as a consequence of the fall. The counterintuitive thing is that I find so many of those godly saints to be such a source of encouragement. I I think of men, I'll embarrass him since he's not here, I think of men like Doc Satterfield, a man who loves this church, a man who loves the word, loves his savior, and even though he's been through all kinds of hellish misery in his 84 years, yet Christ continues to be sweeter to him with each passing day. I've told you stories before, I I, I believe. There's older men who have had to bury their adult children and grandchildren and then their wife, all within the span of a year and a half. And you ask them how they're getting by, how how they're persevering, and they'll shrug a little, and they'll tell you, yeah, it's, it's been rough this week, this month, this season. But God is good, and his word is true, and his promises are sure, and I've been blessed. Christ Jesus is near, and we will see him soon, and our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Godly, aged saints who have that splendid perspective on eternity and that firm rootedness in the word and that firm rootedness in Christ, flourishing like that tree in Psalm 1. Despite all the mitigating factors against it, that tree, that aged saint keeps on prospering, keeps on believing, keeps on pressing on in Christ, keeps on trusting his covenant-keeping God, keeps on looking for God to make good on his promises, knowing that the day will come. At last, and that the Lord is ever faithful and sure. We meet such a saint like that tonight in our sermon text, don't, do we not? We meet such a godly saint in Simeon. An old covenant saint, to be sure. One who was looking forward to the consolation of Israel. One who, like us, does not have the benefit of living this side of the resurrection. And seeing and enjoying God's saving mercies and all their glorious new covenant fullness. But we find here in this man a faithful saint nonetheless. Knowing God's promises in the Old Testament scriptures, we find him waiting expectantly in the temple there in Jerusalem on this poignant morning. Now I've read the larger context there for you up up to verse 38. We read read about the the prophetess Anna and the the praise that she rendered. And I read that just to give us the the fuller context of all that's happening there. But we're going to look narrowly at the song of Simeon for our, our study tonight. Verse 26 tells us that Simeon had been informed, he'd been told by the Holy Spirit, that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ, his Messiah, his anointed one. And so as the infant Jesus is brought into the temple by his parents in accordance with the law of Moses, for his ritual purification, we'll talk more about that in a moment and explain 
what is going on there as Luke makes frequent reference to the law of Moses. But as he's brought in, Simeon realizes this child is the child for whom he's been waiting all these years. He is, we are told, Simeon, a a man of God, a devout man, a man who had dedicated himself to the service of his God. He'd been waiting all these years for the consolation of Israel, a man faithfully walking with the Lord. And now as he sees Mary and Joseph entering the temple, and there's there's this baby, the most ordinary of things when you think of the Jewish custom as Jewish mothers and fathers would bring in so many of their children for ritual purification and post-circumcision ritual as was the custom, as was the law. But here comes Mary and Joseph with this baby in Mary's arms and by revelation from the Holy Spirit, Simeon sees them walking through into the temple, through the courtyard perhaps and he realizes, there he is! There's the one! We, we, we mentioned last week that when you read through the Old Testament, every time there's a new leader, there's this biblical theological sense. Every time there's a new leader, every time there's a new figurehead, every time there's a new king, every time there's a new covenant mediator, you get this sense from the scripture as if the narrator is waiting with bated breath. Is this the one? Is, is this the one that we were told about way back in Genesis 3 who will crush the serpent's head? We're told that this seed from Eve, this descendant from Eve would come. So who's going to do it? Who will crush the curse? Who will provide deliverance for God's sin-stricken people? Is it Jacob? No. Is it Moses? No. Is it David? Elijah? Elisha? No, 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 no. But finally, finally, here's Simeon. No more no's. Here he is. The seed The descendant of the woman from that godly line has finally come. The Lord's Christ, his anointed, the son of the Lord, the son of David who will rule the nations. There he is. There he is in the flesh. The Lord's salvation has come in the person of this child. And Simeon lifts up his voice and he says, Lord, now, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. It had arrived. He had seen it with his own eyes. He'd he'd held it in his own arms. This child, this person, Jesus Christ, God has kept his word. Isn't he good? Isn't he faithful? Blessed be God. What a song Simeon leaves us with. What a What a biographical crescendo, if you like. What a capstone to a life of faithfulness, of eager expectation, of looking to the Lord and waiting on his promises. There's a deep and profound satisfaction that's evidenced here by Simeon as you look over his words and meditate on them. There's a a satisfaction that just jumps off the page at you. A satisfaction in God, satisfaction in his word. And now finally, a a fulfilled contentment as he's holding this child. There's now a satisfaction in Jesus, another facet of the Lord God whom he adores and loves and worships and serves. Now it's the Lord incarnate, his own son. That's the great theme that we get from Simeon's song and really the great calling that we have as his people, that the life we live ought to be one that is centered on and given over to satisfaction in our triune God. That's our great call, to be satisfied in Christ Jesus, 
to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our catechism, right? That's our chief end. And for Simeon, that satisfaction in God, that profound contentment, is governed by these twin branches, as I see them. There's numerous ways that we could outline this text, perfectly legitimate ways. But two particular branches, as we're exploring them this evening, from the Old Covenant, one stemming from the Old Covenant, and one that's on the cusp, about to spring forth into the New Covenant. Verses 21 through 24, you you notice that Luke, Dr. Luke, ever the detail-oriented man, I I, I love Luke for his hyper-obsession with details and precision like that. Luke is very keen to show us the ceremonial and ritual requirements of the Law of Moses. They're being carefully observed. You probably heard that phrase or, or read that phrase multiple times, according to the law of the Lord. That phrase gets used over and over again. And then, so that's in verses 21 through 24, and then in verses 25 down through 32, there's another repeat phrase. If you look at it in verse 25, right there at the end, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Or verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 27, he came in the Spirit into the temple. In this section, In verses 25 through 32, it's the prophetic ministry of the Holy Spirit that comes into focus. Here, I say that, friends, because here we begin to see something of the overlap of the covenant eras, of the old covenant giving way to the dawning of the new covenant. You know, sometimes people will ask, and it's a perfectly fine question, perfectly legitimate, when does the old covenant formally end, and when does the new covenant formally begin? Was it with the birth of Christ? Was it with the resurrection of Christ? And and the short answer is that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts, are something of a transition period, something of a flux, where we, we see the old covenant setting and recessing into the background, and the new covenant dawning and rising and coming more into the foreground. John the Baptist is considered to be the last of the Old Testament economy. He's considered to be the last of the Old Testament cycle of prophets. But throughout Jesus' life, you know, sacrifices were still being offered. We know that in the temple. Jesus himself, as our Savior, as our great high priest, as our new and better Adam, keeps all of the Old Testament laws. And we see the apostles in the temple in the early parts of Acts, but we also see them gathering on the Lord's Day by the end of Acts. And we see something of that reality, that that influx, that not quite in, not quite out, not quite done, not quite arrived, something flux, period, even here in this text and in Simeon's song. We see something of the beginning of the fading of the Old Covenant and the inauguration of the New Covenant. So two broad themes, two broad themes by which to study our text tonight as we see Simeon's great joy and the fulfillment of God's promises in the arrival of Christ Jesus. Quite simply, Old Covenant fulfillment and New Covenant dawning. Old Covenant fulfillment and New Covenant dawning. Let's think through this text along those lines tonight. First, Old Covenant fulfillment. Let's think first of all in verses 21 through 24 about Old Covenant fulfillment. And notice the three rituals that Luke records for us. You may not have Noticed it at first blush. I didn't. I had to read through it several times. But there's three ceremonies that Luke makes mention of here. The first is the ceremony of circumcision. Or if it's not there explicitly, it's certainly implied. The first is the ceremony of circumcision, the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. God's promises to Abraham are a recurring 
item in these early portions of the Gospel of Luke. Remember Mary and her Magnificat? She sang about God's covenant and promise to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Uh, Back in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, you see that. Uh, Last week, when we looked at the song of Zechariah, the Benedictus, in Luke 1, uh, Zechariah sang about God's holy covenant and the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Or here in Luke chapter 2, back in chapter 2, up at verse 10, the angels saying to the people, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And as that angel makes the announcement to the shepherds, he seems to allude to the language of Genesis chapter 12. Remember Genesis 12? God says to Abram, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then... The angel to the shepherds abiding in the fields, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. So these, I say all that simply to emphasize that the promises given to Father Abraham, those ancient covenant promises to Abraham, they're all over Luke's narrative. They're all over Luke's narrative. And remember, the sign of the covenant promise given to Abraham and to his descendants was the sign of circumcision. Every male descendant of Abraham would have been circumcised. Mary and Joseph, just like countless other ordinary, faithful Jewish families across the ages, were simply obeying the command given way back in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. It says that a male child shall be circumcised after eight days. As many commentators point out, this activity was frankly mundane, domestic, and ordinary almost like an ancient world equivalent of filling out the birth certificate. It's just what you do. Everybody's got to do it, at least among Jewish male babies. That's what they do. And by the way, look at the Lord Jesus and his active obedience on your behalf, even in his infancy. Even in his infancy. With the the faithful obedience of his parents facilitating it, even as a baby, you see him keeping the whole of God's law. As a perfect Savior, in your room and in your stead, keeping all of God's holy precepts down to the most minute detail. The keeping of God's law. That's what theologians call Christ's active obedience, as opposed to his passive obedience, his death on the cross. Right? Active obedience, he actively does it. Passive obedience, it's done unto him, it's done to him. He receives it passively. How we need, friends, how we need the active obedience of Christ how we need a substitute to keep God's law perfectly for us since we have failed so miserably in ourselves and in our father, Adam. And look at this infant Savior, this infant Savior keeping God's precepts even here. And as this child is brought to the temple for dedication, (laughs) this isn't just any old descendant of Abraham. He is the son of Abraham to whom the covenant promises pointed and in whom that promise is realized. Think how many dozens, think how many hundreds, think how many thousands of young Jewish boy children would have been brought into the temple for various rituals, and how many of them could, were, were going to betray, of course, trace their lineage to Abraham. How many thousands of Abraham's descendants are brought into this temple day after day, week after week, year after year? Of course it's another descendant of Abraham brought in for the covenant ritual. But here this time, it's not just any old descendant of Abraham. It's Abram's descendant, 
and the one to whom the promises given to Abraham are terminated and realized and fulfilled. No wonder Simeon's song is filled with those choruses of rest and satisfaction and completion. Notice that he's overjoyed not just because of the promise to him personally, as he gets there in verse 26, as if that's not enough, that the Holy Spirit had told him he's going to see the Lord's salvation before he dies. But he's excited, he's overjoyed, because on a corporate level, he's overjoyed on behalf of all the people of God. Verse 31, you see it there? Verse 31, God's salvation had come, salvation prepared in the presence of all peoples. Prepared according to the terms of God's ancient covenant to Abraham to bring salvation to the ends of the earth and in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. This tiny babe that Simeon now holds in his arms is what Abram longed to see. I love how one commentator puts it. Who would not sing at such a moment? In Jesus Christ, God has kept his word. God has kept his word. So there's one ritual that Luke highlights for us in the Jesus circumcision, and that prompts, of course, Simeon's overwhelming joy as he realizes what's transpiring before him. But then look at verse 22. There's another ritual that Luke highlights. We skip ahead at that point about five weeks after the date of Jesus' circumcision. The family's now at the temple at this point. Verse 22, they've come for Mary's ritual cleansing. For Mary's ritual cleansing. Remember Mosaic Law, back in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, it tells us that if a woman gives birth to a boy, she's ceremonially unclean for seven days. So then on day 8, they circumcise the boy, and then the mother is unclean for another 33 days, 40 days total. A very typically significant biblical number, 40 a longer period for a female baby, but that's a study for another day. But at the end of that period, she was to bring to the temple two sacrifices, a lamb for a burnt offering and a pigeon for a sin offering. Leviticus 12, verse 6 tells us that. The priest would offer them and make atonement for the sin of the mother. It was a very symbolic way to see and to say that sin passes from generation to generation, and therefore it requires cleansing and atonement and purification. Hebrew law recognized the reality of original sin. We are sinners by nature. And even in infancy, even in infancy, atonement was necessary. And so Mary is in the temple. At the prescribed time, weeks after Jesus has been circumcised, little, boy, little baby boy Jesus has been circumcised, Mary now comes to the temple to make her ritual offering, to receive the symbols of forgiveness and cleansing. I wonder if Luke was aware of the glorious irony playing out as he recounts these events. I tend to believe he was being superintended by the Holy Spirit as he was recording these things. Because after all, to whom do these sacrifices point us? The prescription for two young turtle doves or two young pigeons or a pigeon and a, and a lamb. Leviticus 12 verse 8 tells us that if a family is poor and they cannot afford a lamb for sacrifice, they have the option of offering two turtle doves or pigeons. Mary and Joseph are apparently poor, so they offer that sacrifice. Do you see? Mary is making the animal sacrifice for her own ritual cleansing, while in that same moment she holds in her arms the child whose blood is the thing that will ultimately make her clean. 
the one to whom all these animal ceremonial sacrifices pointed, the, the one in whom they all terminate, is in the infant she now holds. It is the infant she now holds. The cause for her need of cleansing is the very fulfillment of the ritual cleansing in which she now participates. The son that she carries is the Lamb of God who would make her truly clean. To imagine what's happening in the temple that day, you think of the constant busyness of the cycle of ritual and sacrifice and offerings, priestly offerings, throughout the clock over and over and over again. As animals are slaughtered and clouds of incense arise, and and, and the priests are ambling back and forth, performing their priestly rituals, could they realize that he who would fulfill all that elaborate Old Testament economy, the one for whom animal sacrifice is even now being offered, is cradled in his mother's arms right in their midst, that the one through his eventual shed blood at Calvary, that this one through whom cleansing would come, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Remember that hymn? Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Friends, you can be clean by trusting Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The stain of guilt and sin washed away, purified, cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Covenant fulfillment. Cleansing and purification. We see it in the rituals and there he is. Jesus, the ultimate source of that cleansing that all these elaborate ceremony points. But then there's a third ritual that Luke highlights for us. Not only Jesus' circumcision, not only Mary's ritual cleansing. But then also, verses 22 and 23, Jesus is presented to the Lord. He's consecrated to God. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, required that every firstborn son be consecrated to the Lord. Now, parents, of course, would continue to raise their own child, provided they redeemed him by offering the requisite sacrifice and paying the redemption price. Again, the glorious irony that's on these pages from Luke's pen. Jesus Christ is being dedicated and consecrated, made holy to the Lord as a firstborn son according to the law of Moses. A redemption price is paid for him, and all the while he himself would be our redemption. The one who would pay the price for our redemption to God. How paltry must that have been in the economy of the cosmos, that a a redemption price is offered for him, the one who is our redemption price. Mary brings her son, who is at the same time ever and always God's eternally begotten son, and is the one of whom Paul says was sent forth in the fullness of time to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And as the Mosaic ritual is performed upon him, it points to the reality of what he himself would one day do. He sets us free, does he not? He buys us back. This child would grow up to be our ransom. He would grow up to be our deliverer. 
He comes to set the captive sinner at liberty. Christ has come. God has kept his word. The promises, the the covenant is fulfilled and your conscience might be truly cleansed and your guilt truly pardoned and your eternity truly secured and your salvation truly grasped. Because Christ Jesus is the one who provides true cleansing in his own precious blood. He is the true ransom price. And so with all of that, Simeon sings full of joy and satisfaction and in the rest of his soul because this child whom he holds, he knows is the perfect and complete Savior to him and to all of God's people. No wonder he sings. So that's the first thing. Old covenant fulfillment. Old covenant fulfillment. But then secondly, we see the new covenant dawning. In Jesus, God is showing himself. He's manifesting himself to us. And one of the ways that we, we see the, the, the sunlight of the new covenant era beginning to crest, beginning to peak over the horizon, is the emphasis that we see here on the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not to say that the Holy Spirit is not present in the Old Testament. He is. But rather that the Spirit is given greater emphasis and amplification A covenantal fullness of sorts when we come to the New Testament. And we begin to see that even in Luke's opening pages here. Over and over, Luke highlights the role of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Simeon's life. Simeon is portrayed here as a prophet. He's guided by the Holy Spirit. Even guided, as one man says, as one commentator says, in terms of his footsteps that morning into the temple. That he might meet Mary and Joseph and the infant Jesus. As a prophet, you know, was there, as he's standing there in the temple grounds, was there a, was there a flash of insight, of, of revelation upon him? As Simeon took in what's occurring before him? That, that this infant Messiah would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and that by his shed blood, not the blood of ceremonial lambs and birds, but by his shed blood, God's people would be free from sin, that here is the Lord's salvation. Did did all this come upon him in in a moment? Who knows? We're not told. But as he takes the child in his arms with a glad, praise-swelling heart, notice what he says. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of God's personal promise to Simeon that he would see him before his end of days and the fulfillment of God's corporate promise to Abraham and all of God's people, but Jesus, Simeon tells us, and as several commentators have pointed out, is actually... God's final climactic word to the world. Verse 32. He's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon's a godly man. He knows his Old Testament. He's alluding to Isaiah as he says that. How many times Isaiah records God the Father making pronouncement upon his servant, the Messiah? We thought about some of this already, even this morning. Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness would see a great light. It's this child. He's the light. Or later on, Isaiah 42, verse 6. I will give you as a covenant for the peoples a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind. Isaiah 49, verse 6. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Or one of my favorites, Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
The Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The truth is, Simeon knows and Isaiah knows that by nature we wander in darkness, don't we? Drowning, choking, damning spiritual darkness. But Jesus Christ is the light that pierces deepest dark. By nature, we don't know the truth. We are lost in spiritual darkness. But Jesus, hallelujah, praise the Lord, is divine revelation. He is a light for revelation, re- revelation to the nations. Simeon, you see here, aged, godly Simeon, is in full agreement with the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And Simeon is one of those prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. Last days. Jesus, the Son, has spoken once and for all. No greater word to come. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Christ Jesus is the climax and the fulfillment, not not just of the types and the shadows and the ceremonies of the Old Covenant and the law. He is that, but he's also the climax of prophecy. He's the climax of all Holy Scripture, of the Old Covenant, as it was building and building and building and building. And as as we heard about this morning, that, that wider and wider vantage point and that wider, wider expanse of insight into God's redemptive plan being given from the days of Abraham to the days of Noah to the or the days of Noah, then to Abraham, and then to Moses, and then to David and to the prophets, and now wide the gate opens. At last, and it one day gives way to this, to him, the dawning of the new covenant, which will soon show forth this babe of Bethlehem, grown up to be the perfect law keeper, and the God-man, and the sinless sufferer, the man of Calvary, made sin for us, who would again rise who is the Lord even now, reigning on his throne. All, you see, all of redemptive history was building to this. And Simeon says, here it is! Our old pastor loved to quote this line from his old theology professor, and I love to quote it too. It's, it's quite simply this. In God, there is nothing unchristlike at all. In God, there is nothing unchristlike at all. You want to know God? Look at Jesus Christ. Here is your God, condescending. Come down that you may know him. And carry that morning into the temple for whom sacrifices were made, who himself would be the great final sacrifice, God's great and final word. Christian, brothers and sisters, look to Christ, and as you do, behold your God. Knowing all that, Is it any wonder (laughs) that Simeon sings this prophetic hymn of such profound contentment and joy and satisfaction? Because here at last, in this child that he holds in his arms, in Christ his soul has found rest. His covenant-keeping God, Jehovah, has made good on his promises. And so he says, if I may reverently paraphrase, you can let me go, Lord. My life is complete, and I'm at peace. 
Such a sentiment like that is heartwarming, surely, but it's entirely impossible apart from Christ. I trust you know that. Stake all your hope upon him, friends. Are you satisfied in the final life-giving word that God has spoken? Or are you looking for something more? Don't, if you are. Don't look for something more. Is the object of Simeon's hope the source, the source of, of his heart-swelling joy? Is that true of you? Do you know and believe on Jesus Christ? May it be that the truth of Simeon's song would be true of all of us and that we all might sing this song of soul-thrilling gladness and rest and satisfaction. Praise God for the glory of the Incarnation. Praise God for the glory of promises kept, of covenants fulfilled. And praise God for his word to us tonight. Let's all pray. Lord, we do praise you for the true light that pierces the darkness. Jesus Christ, a light for revelation to the nations. Your final word, O God. Help us, we pray, to hear and see and know him and to find in him true satisfaction for our souls. Seal your word to our hearts this night and everlastingly we pray, and all for his sake. Amen.